and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 32, recorded on December 17th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you once again. Amazon has a new Linux release to kick us off. What's this? Yeah, so Amazon Linux 2, which is really just for their EC2 cloud. But the big difference now is that unlike the previous version, you can run it on your own local machines if you want, albeit not on bare metal. This is Linux in 2017, early 2018, where when you release a new version of your custom Linux distro, you don't even bother with the ISO anymore. You release it on Docker Hub or as virtual machine images for VMware, VirtualBox, or Microsoft's Hyper-V for on-solution deployment. So I decided, well, I'll give it a go before the show, and I deployed it in Docker on my local machine. And I would describe it as a very pared-down Red Hat Enterprise experience. And when I say pared-down, I mean it doesn't even have PS or top. It is a very basic command-line system, and Yum has been configured to point to Amazon repositories for the updates and packages. But this support for running it locally is the big story here, I think, because... Although you could run their previous version, which was, uh, they called it Amazon Linux AMI, didn't they? 2017.09 was the latest release of it. It was effectively uh, Amazon Linux 1, let's call it, even though it's not quite called that. But that one, you could only run on EC2. And a lot of people criticized that because it meant that you had to develop your applications on one operating system and then deploy them on something completely different. And okay, it's not going to be 100% the same, the EC2 version and the Docker image that you're running locally, but it's going to be a lot more similar. And so it's interesting that they've done this, presumably because they want to draw more people away from RHEL and CentOS and potentially Ubuntu to using their own Amazon Linux. Yeah, perhaps. Although I think it might be more to your first point, that this is about creating a development environment locally that matches what you would deploy on Amazon's ECS or EC2 infrastructure. So you have kernel 4.9 inside this thing. You have GCC 7.2.1, glibc 2.25. This is a base operating system, bare base metal operating system for you to build applications on top of. This isn't meant for hobbyists or enthusiast Linux users. This is truly built for people to just deploy applications on top of. They wanted to offer something around an LTS kernel that has systemd support. They, they specifically call that out, actually. And what they say, newer tooling and software packages, such as Python, MariaDB, Node.js, that you can install from their Amazon Linux extra repository that's configured. And you mentioned the long-term support kernel. Well, this is going to get five years of long-term support once we get the final release. Now, I wouldn't be too surprised if that 4.9 kernel holds it back in raw performance comparisons in the future. It's not that it's that old, so don't take it the wrong way. But in three or four years, it may be holding it back. In fact, if you look at some of the early benchmarks from Pharonix, it already is sort of lagging behind the competition in raw performance in some instances, which I think is noteworthy since the entire purpose of this thing is to be a lean, mean performing machine. Yeah, if you compare it with clear Linux... That is doing a lot better on almost all of these benchmarks. Yeah, and SUSE even does better in some benchmarks as well. Yeah, but it's funny that Ubuntu kind of comes middle of the road, doesn't it? It's kind of, as you'd expect, it's quite full-featured, but it's lean enough. And, and that's why it's a very popular cloud operating system, I think. So these Pharonix benchmarks will be linked in the show notes. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash 32. 
Benchmarks aside, I think this is a pretty clever strategy on Amazon's part. You build it on something that's an industry standard, you make sure it's supported on your platform in particular, and now make it available for on-premises deployment. It's not going to be the biggest version of Linux next year, but if I was a shop that was looking to build an application that I was going to run on Amazon's infrastructure, I absolutely would consider this as the base for my operating system. Well, if you had an application to build, no doubt you'd be doing it on Windows 10 these days because it pretty much looks like Linux anyway, doesn't it? Wow, that hits close to home. It does after you install a different terminal, turn on all the classic stuff, add the Linux subsystem for Windows, install a Linux distribution, and now add the new OpenSSH client that's going to be built into Windows 10. Yeah, so that was part of the Windows subsystem anyway, but now you can just have that if that's all you need. If you don't need to do any development locally, but if you just need to SSH out to a server somewhere, instead of messing around with PuTTY, which people have been using for years, now you've got native OpenSSH, which is just one more domino falling, isn't it? Yeah, it's available already. If you have the fall creators update and you have a beta option mode, you can, I'm not a big Windows 10 user as you can tell, but you can actually install this and not just the client, but maybe the bigger news for those of us that used to manage Windows servers, Microsoft's also including an OpenSSH server. I've spoken to a few Linux people about this and their reaction was, what? SSH into a Windows box? It's like dogs and cats living together. The whole world's gone mad, isn't it? You know why it's useful is when you're building automation scripts that kick off with cron jobs, you SSH into a system, you grab a file, you SCP a file over. Windows machines, you always had to come up with some sort of convoluted or proprietary commercial SSH server that you would install and pay an annual fee to use. And it was kind of like OpenSSH. To have Microsoft build it is going to make... Windows servers fit in with the automation tools that are being built for all the existing Linux and Unix systems. And you definitely want to be trusting your private keys with some proprietary SSH server, don't you? You know, that's the part of this that I couldn't even believe. This is the part where they surprised me. This is all being done in open source. In fact, they're working upstream with the official OpenSSH portable project, and they plan to upstream their code to that project. And they've posted everything at github.com slash PowerShell slash win32 dash OpenSSH. Can you believe you're saying this to me? When you started podcasting all those years ago, can, can you even imagine conceivably talking about this kind of stuff? We've come so far. I, uh, I, this out of almost all of them is the domino I'm the most afraid of. I have been in the production environment where this is the thing that I needed. But on top of that, the number one response online is sort of collectively, this is the new Microsoft. This is on Microsoft is just building the best tool now and they'll, they'll do whatever it takes. Like that, that sentiment has, I think, fully clicked in on the internet now. I think this is the, this is almost a bigger deal than them including the Linux subsystem for Windows because you could see the strategic reason they did that. But with OpenSSH, this is genuinely just trying to make people's workflow on Windows a little bit better. And the fact that you'll be able to SSH in and the community is already building, if you install it from the chocolatey repo, a little switcher that lets you choose if you go into Command Prompt or PowerShell or Bash when you SSH into your Windows box. This really is a new era, Joe. It really is. And it just shows that open source has become the industry standard. 
to the point where Microsoft just cannot ignore it anymore. Yeah, and it it does seem to be um, a recognition that if Windows 10 is going to be a competitive development workstation and administration platform, it's got to support these features. And I think this is really going to work in a way that may not be awesome for all Linux. When you combine the fact that you could now simultaneously, or at least very soon, I should say, run SUSE and Fedora and Ubuntu side-by-side on a Windows system, have native open SSH access, and still run best-of-breed applications like the best implementation maybe of Chrome or of Telegram on the desktop, and you get the Slack app, and then you have a decent version of Skype if for some horrible reason you have to use that, it's a pretty compelling workstation for people that just want to get their work done because now they've got Bash and they don't have to hassle with all these other little fiddly things. Yeah, not to mention when uh, 5 o'clock rolls around, fire up Steam and get the AAA games running. I think it's going to be a pretty wide appeal, and that's, that's what gives me pause because, of course, I want to see more people using desktop Linux. I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I did try out Windows 10 for a bit for the Coda Radio program and uh, couldn't stick with it. it. It was fine, and I can really see why it would work for a lot of people. But it is Windows, and there are still things that really bother me about that platform. But for others, there may not be as much of an annoyance for them. Yeah, I don't think that we're going to have Linux users going to Windows. I think it's more a case of this is going to keep people on Windows who may have possibly gone to Linux. Yeah, that's my thinking too. Well, us Linux users, Windows users, and even Mac users were united in our outrage at Mozilla's decision to just slip a little add-on into our Firefox. Yeah, now this is something that almost passed me by because I didn't actually notice it in Firefox. But then I read online the outrage about it. And so there's a TV show on the USA network called Mr. Robot, which coincidentally is about hacking. And there's quite a lot of Linux in there. He actually runs Linux Mint on his home desktop, which is quite funny. Um, most of the time he uses Kali Linux, though. And they have uh, an ARG, an alternate reality game, where there's all sorts of clues and it's kind of this deeper level to enjoy the show, which is okay, fair enough. I'm not really into that, but some people are. And they did this deal with Mozilla to push out this extension into people's browsers, which was mostly not turned on by default, although I've heard some reports that it was, that's a little bit unclear at this stage, that was part of the game without asking people. And people were just understandably outraged about this. As I say, it passed me by until I read about it because it's removed on my machine. But I just can't believe that Mozilla would do this. That's my first reaction too, Joe. And then my second reaction is, you just wrote a huge check against all of the great will you just accumulated for Firefox 57 Quantum. Yeah, all the people who are considering moving back or who have moved back now are thinking, well, hang on, if you're going to do stuff like this, why am I bothering? I put Firefox 57 on all of my systems except for this one machine I'm sitting in front of right now, and it it's at least paused my role a little bit. I'm, I'm not totally sure how I feel about this. I definitely am upset uh, because the deal I had with Firefox is they were the anti-Chrome, and I was trying to get some insight into why Mozilla would do this. So I, I did some digging around, and I, I, I follow some Mozilla employees and some Rust developers on Twitter, And I've seen that they're pretty upset as well. They've also claimed that Mozilla wasn't paid a dime for any of this, that this was the other way around. This was going to be a huge promotion for Firefox in the popular Mr. Robot series. 
And this was, I think, a desperate attempt to capitalize on good momentum. We've just got a great boost from 57. Now we're going to be featured in Mr. Robot. And the thinking must have been people would see this exclusive content tie in with the series when they watched the show, and they would rush to download Firefox again, and then they would stick with it. Well, that would make sense if it was a show that was as big as, say, The Walking Dead. But Mr. Robot is on a fairly small network, USA. And my understanding is, I don't know exact figures, but I think it gets under a million viewers, which is not very much. And okay, there's quite a lot of people watching it on Amazon and um, Netflix, that sort of thing, on demand. But it's not a massive show. It's probably quite a technical audience. I certainly watch it. I think it's quite a good show. I think the third season has been very good. But I just don't see how it's worth burning this goodwill. If there's any TV audience out there that would not take this very well, it's the Mr. Robot television audience out of all of the television shows that have maybe have ever been created. Yeah. So you can check anyway, if you are running Firefox, you can go to about colon studies in the URL bar and see if it's installed. And there's a button there, update preferences, which takes you to uh, about preferences and then um, hash privacy. And there you can untick the box for allow Firefox to send technical interaction data to Mozilla and also allow Firefox to install and run studies. Now, this studies thing is how they managed to push this out to people without them noticing. And I cannot believe that that is on by default. What's the point of running a free software open source browser if the vendor can push plugins and add-ons and stuff and stuff that I don't need? Crap, basically. So I urge people, go to that and turn that stuff off if you want to be protected against this. And okay, it's not nefarious, it's not malware, although people were very confused by it because it wasn't even clear that it was coming from this Mr. Robot show. It just seemed like this weird malware that had been added. But who knows? At the moment, Mozilla is being run by people who don't have nefarious intentions, I don't think. But you never know if if someone compromised their servers or something that this could be a mechanism to push stuff in. So this is just a catalog of errors from Mazur, uh, errors of judgment and technical errors. And I'm just very disappointed with them. I think it betrays a deep misunderstanding of their core base. The pocket stuff, I think, is what comes to people's mind is the first time this really happened. But since then, there's also been the clicks controversy, which only a few users in Germany were subjected to. But it, it was basically full-on every URL you visit type surveillance with one of their partners. And I'm going to now be turning all of this stuff off on all my machines. And I've always left it on because I wanted to register as a Linux user. I wanted their metric servers to collect an active Linux instance and hoping that maybe some of those Windows users were turning it off and us Linux users were leaving it on to show our vote to keep supporting Linux. And now I got to turn it all off. And I find that to be really unfortunate. I would only be presuming what's going on over at Mozilla, but I really hope there is an honest reflection on this moment where they can say to themselves, we are clearly disconnected with the relationship that people have with our web browser. And we have now made three very glaring mistakes where we have violated their trust and their privacy. And we cannot build our brand around privacy, security, and web standards when we keep making these mistakes. Well, you mentioned Pocket. Don't worry. They acquired Pocket earlier this year, and they're going to open source it anytime now. Last.ting.com. Go there to support this show, but also 
Get $25 in Ting service credits if you bring a device or get $25 off of a Ting cell phone. It's a smarter way to do mobile. The average Ting bill is just $23 per month per phone. It's $6 for your line and then your usage on top of that. So if you have Wi-Fi at work and you have Wi-Fi at home, then you're really probably only using your mobile data on a day-to-day basis when you're commuting, at least mostly in my case. Or maybe when a special occasion comes up and I'm out and about, I'm out Christmas shopping. So I... I love this system because it's sort of like hacking the system. I can I can get by some months and not make a phone call. And that's amazing because I'll just do it all over Skype or I'll do it all over Telegram. It's wonderful. It's a simple system for technical people. It's just pay for what you use. And they have CDMA and GSM systems. Go check it out. Go to last.ting.com. Nationwide coverage, no contracts, pay for what you use. Last.ting.com. All right, Chris, it's time to get our tinfoil hats on and time to start frying that conspiracy bacon. (laughs) I do love my conspiracy bacon, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about the Intel management engine again. And so it's come out this week that starting with Intel management engine version 12, Intel are going to put a hardware lock to stop these downgrade attacks. So they're going to stop you overwriting the firmware. And that was one of the big attack vectors. But this is something that you had speculated was going to happen to stop people being able to disable the management engine in the first place. And it seems that you were right about that. Yeah, we weren't quite sure which direction would it go. Would they double down and try to prevent this? Or would they offer a line of processors without the management engine? Which would have been the much better scenario. I suppose if you really buy this concept that this is a fundamental feature you must have, and I acknowledge it probably is useful for some network administrators and businesses, absolutely. But if, if you accept the fundamental fact that it's useful for all of the systems, then I guess you would just double down on securing it because otherwise it's an attack vector. But is this even going to work? Are people just going to find a way around it? Well, they thought they'd built an unhackable system before, I would imagine. So people generally find the weak spots. There may be a weak spot in the fact that OEMs have the option to turn this on or off. It ships as disabled by default for now. And then your HPs and Dells and Lenovo's of the world have to toggle it back on. I think this recent spate of stories about this has really gone to illustrate one thing. That Intel has got a lot of clever people working for them on this kind of stuff. But you cannot beat the wisdom of the crowds. And if you've got an entire world of people hacking this thing, they're going to find problems with it. And if it's not open, and if if your whole outlook on it and your whole approach to it isn't an open wisdom of the crowds, many eyeballs approach, then you're going to keep running into these problems. And it's just essentially an arms race at this point because it's got enough publicity that no matter what Intel do now, there's going to be so many people hammering on it, trying to beat it to make a name for themselves at things like Black Hat Europe and stuff. They're creating demand. They're creating demand for a product. Yeah, exactly. And so we've they've got to give up at some point and either properly open source it, which doesn't seem likely, or offer proper hardware kill switches for it. That That's the only solution. Purism's gotten a little bit of publicity out of this announcement as well. The Register went to Todd Weaver, the CEO of Purism, to get a quote about this. There is now a product category that is being defined by Intel, and it's ironic that they don't see it because they could sell to this very market themselves a product that doesn't have the management engine. But is it just that we're trapped in this FOSS bubble that we care about this stuff? 
Yeah, I think it probably tints our view on this a bit. I think that's a fair question to ask. I don't necessarily think it means we're wrong, though. When you have a core fundamental piece of technology like this, history has shown us more eyes is almost always a good thing. And you'd kind of expect Intel to have that opinion as well, since they've been around the tech industry for a little while, and these things almost never, ever end well for any company that goes down this path. But we just don't know all of their motivations in this as well. And we also don't know if this is the final say. Intel says they will likely toggle this to on by default in the near future and recommend that OEMs do that themselves today. They may also be somewhere in the boardroom drawing up plans right now for a management-free version of the Intel chip. Who knows? We'll just have to wait and see where this thing goes. But right now, I'm not too surprised they've made this step, if maybe just a bit disappointed. Yeah. All right, well, so we've had an update on this Conservancy and Software Freedom Law Center situation. This is a post on the Software Freedom Conservancy's blog from Bradley, who runs the Conservancy, and it is confirming some things that people suspected and clarifying other things that people have speculated as well. And in it, he links to the full filing, where they are trying to just go for a dismissal. Essentially, they're building a case around three core points. Number one... The law center knew the conservancy's name because they helped establish the conservancy and provided legal counsel for six years. They have invited the conservancy to many events where they promoted their services and even encouraged projects to seek them out. And the third tier is this is a personal vendetta between Eben Moglen and Bradley and Karen. And they make this case in a long 168-page legal filing. I read the entire thing. The most salacious page is 29, and if you want to read it yourself, you really only need to read the first 36 pages. But in these 36 pages, and then they give exhibits, they build a case of years of dialogue between the Conservancy and the Law Center, where lots of grievances have been aired, but the trademark was never one of them. It's going to be very interesting to see what the Law Center comes back with against this, because Based on this evidence, it does seem like they don't have any case against this trademark, do they? Because, as you say, there's been a lot of back and forth over the years, but this is the first time they've ever mentioned the trademark. So I just, it, it just seems like a spurious suit to me. In their filing, they make a pretty clear case that it's bad blood. In fact, in in some parts, they use very plain English about the situation in a way that does feel a bit like airing of dirty laundry. It's a little unfortunate to see this have to take place. And I think Bradley even reflects a bit in his post saying that the the speculation and, and the energy that's gone towards people constructing narratives around this is energy that should go towards free software. I completely agree. Unfortunately, the ramifications, if the Freedom Software Law Center were successful, the ramifications would be would really split the open source communities because we're talking about some projects that are under the conservancy umbrella that really matter to people. And if you go to their website, they have a list and I guarantee you there are projects on that list you care about. That is true, but I, I'm not worried somehow. I, I just don't think that there's enough of a case here to warrant yeah. any sleepless nights here. I, I just think that it's it's just a spat that's got out of control and I, I just think it's... It's going to end quietly rather than in a big bang. But one thing that's missing from all of this update is the Linux kernel community enforcement statement stuff, which we speculated at the time was the kind of catalyst for this, but there's been no mention of that, has there? Yeah, because I think their position is that's not really what this is about. 
Do we believe that? I do. I do. Because the legal process started back in September before the announcement was even made. I mean, I'm sure that the background work to that large agreement between all 200 kernel developers that had copyright, um, I'm sure that took a long time. So I'm sure Mr. Mulgren was aware of it. But uh, when you read the Law Center's blog, this feels more like it's a competitive, we want to start offering these types of services move, and we don't like these people, and less about the specifics around the kernel enforcement strategy. My only pause with all of this, Joe, is I think you're probably right. I think the Conservancy has a great case here. Uh, they're smart people, and they're, they're very direct in their legal filing. It's just that Ibn Moglin is not new. He has been around for a long time, and he really knows law. So if there was anybody I'd be afraid to go to war with in the courtroom, it would be him. Well, like I said last time, I just want to see an end to this as soon as possible. This just cannot be good for free software, open source, Linux, any of the stuff we talk about and cover and use every day. I just want to see this done and dusted and let's move on. Yeah, I completely agree. And hopefully the Conservancy's motion for a summary judgment here will be successful because that will be the least costly and most time efficient process if they are successful. Yeah. Okay, so let's end with some Jupiter Broadcasting news. And there's been a reboot of TechSnap with you and Wes. Yeah, episode 348 just went out on the feeds a couple of days ago, and that's where the reboot hits. Wes and I are rebuilding the show. We're going to be adding new stuff, and we're hoping people get in on the ground floor. We're revamping the production. We've got a ton of stuff planned. New website as well, techsnap.systems, and you can put the RSS feed in your favorite podcast catcher, techsnap.systems slash RSS. We're trying out some new stuff with the show, took some lessons we've learned from Linux Action News, and we are applying it to TechSnap. And I'm trying out chapters and time coding in the podcast player. And people so far are really liking that. So when you look in a podcast player that supports it, everything's time coded. You can jump to those sections in the show. So we're doing some new stuff with it too. So it's just, I'd like some feedback on that as well if people want to check it out. But come on, the most important thing is no more BSD nonsense. It's two Linux users now. <laughs> yeah, although we might slip it in from time to time. Rumor has it, uh, Alan Jude may make a wild appearance every now and then on the show. Oh, yeah, you can't escape ZFS on that show, can you? You got to go to Alan Jude when you got the hard ZFS questions. In the meantime, we hope you keep coming back to this show. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this here show. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And please consider supporting the entire network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next week with our special end-of-year wrap-up show. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.